MSW Media. Have you ever wondered what you would do if your boss asked you to do something you believe was immoral or illegal? Today, on this special episode of On Topic, you will hear from a former lawyer at the Justice Department's Office of Legal Counsel during the Trump administration. She quit her job in protest because she believed she was using the law to legitimize Trump's lies. She told her story in the Washington Post. And now she's here to help you understand how DOJ lawyers deal with the challenges of working for a president who engages in rampant constitutional violations. How should the Trump administration's lawyers respond when they're asked to legitimize lies? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name is Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a CNN legal analyst. And today, we have a very special episode of On Topic. We are bringing in Erica Newland, who quit the Trump administration in protest when she was asked to do what, what it was in her, her, in her words, legitimizing lies as a Justi- Justice Department lawyer. When I read Nerica's story, I felt like she could help us understand some of the things that I think are on the minds of many of you. Why is it that we don't see more people quitting in protest? How is it that good people are working to carry forward an administration that at times does things that look to be immoral? like separating children, for example. What, what, what can we learn from her experience that we might be able to uh, use as a way of understanding more broadly what is happening in the Trump administration? That is why I've asked Erica on the podcast. So I interviewed her a few days ago, um, and I think that this interview, while it's not about the week's news, is important and insightful for us to understand why it is that thousands of people are working and caring for the policies of someone that they disagree with. So welcome to the show, Erica. Thank you very much for joining us. Of course, it's great to be here, Renato. So like me, you graduated from Yale Law School. You're just uh, slightly younger than me. Uh, How many years ago did you graduate? Uh, Three and a half years ago. Okay. So after you left um, law school, what was your first legal job? So I clerked for a year on the D.C. Circuit, and then I came to OLC, the Office of Legal Counsel at the Department of Justice, in August of 2016. Okay, so you clerked for a judge on the D.C. Circuit. Just so um, listeners understand, that is a court of appeals. It's probably the most prestigious court of appeals to clerk for. Which judge did you clerk for? Uh, judge Garland. Oh, fantastic! So Merrick Garland, a lot of our um, a lot of our listeners know who he is. Um, so you clerked for uh, Chief Judge Garland, very prestigious thing. Then you went to the Office of Legal Counsel at the Justice Department. Now, I, a lot of our listeners are not going to even know what that is. 
But I yeah. guess, uh, yeah, I, I, that's, yeah, it goes without saying, right? But I would, I would just say as a starting point, um, you know, that is, you know, there are not a lot of legal jobs that are very challenging uh, to get out of when you graduate from Yale. But working at the Office of Legal Counsel is genuinely one of the few legal jobs that is very, very challenging uh, for anyone to get, no matter what law school you graduate from, no matter what your credentials are, it's a very prestigious job in the legal community to work there. So, you know, can you give us a sense of, you know, first of all, what was it that excited you about working at the Office of Legal Counsel? Right. So to, so to understand why the opportunity to work there is so exciting, I think it's helpful for people to understand what the Office of Legal Counsel does and, and how it's different from some of the other lawyers um, that are spread throughout the executive branch. So any president has kind of what we might think of as three sets of lawyers. Uh, he will have his personal lawyers, right? So, um, you know, to help him with, say, his tax returns or a business he may have or something like that. Then there will be the White House Counsel's Office, and these are government attorneys, but they're government attorneys who help this president achieve his goals, and they're located within the White House complex. They're very much tied to this particular president. Then there are the attorneys at the Department of Justice at the Office of Legal Counsel, and these attorneys have two obligations. One is to protect the office of the presidency, you know, no matter who that president is, uh, their their loyalty runs to to the office, right? Obviously to the Constitution more broadly, but their focus is on that office. And then to kind of protect rule of law within the executive branch writ large. So it's an opportunity to be lawyers for for the executive branch um, and, and to kind of do public service that way, which is a pretty awesome thing to get to do when you're fresh out of law school. Yeah, I would say too, it's a job that allows you to spend time thinking about some of the most challenging legal issues and most um, uh, most difficult to um, to um, to tackle legal issues uh, and actually have a real impact with those issues. In other words, you know, you are going to you at times in the, at the if you're at the office of legal counsel, you are what um, is often called as a lawyer's lawyer. You're the lawyer that other lawyers may turn to when they have very challenging legal problems and you're going to have to solve those problems and sometimes those are going to be really important and, and impactful. That's exactly right. You are getting to review uh, the proposals that are coming through the executive branch to see if they're lawful under statutes and also if they're constitutional. Um, and you're getting to work with some of the best lawyers throughout the executive branch writ large, uh, which is also just a really fun partnership and an enormous opportunity to learn about how government works. Yeah, and in fact, um, I w some of the the sort of weighty questions that the Office of Legal Counsel has weighed in on, for example, are one that all of our listeners, uh, you know, ask me questions about all the time, which is, you know, can a sitting president be indicted? That was a question that was <laughs> posed to the Office of Legal Counsel and answered by the Office of Legal Counsel, right? That's correct. So this is the component of the Justice Department that a lot of you ask me questions about. Um, and it's, I'd say, a component that has generated a lot of people who have gone on to be legal superstars in various capacities um, because it attracts some of the, the, the brainiac uh, folks who are, you know, very uh, good legal reasoners. Uh, they're not the sort of trial lawyers like, like I am. They're people who spend a lot of time thinking 
um, about what you know what the law should look like and what you know what the kind of finer points of the law are. So this is like a very fa- very exciting job to get right out of your uh, clerkship. You're a young lawyer, and you joined. I think you said was it August 2016? August of 2016. That's right. Okay, so at the time, uh, Barack Obama was the president, right? Correct. Okay, and so you went through what was just a normal application process. How did this come about? That's right. So a lot of young lawyers who join the Department of Justice come through what's called the Honors Program, uh, which hires about you know, hires in the fall of um, fall before you know you'll start about ten months later. OLC does not hire through the Honors Program. It is just a regular old application process. I submitted a cover letter and resume, and then I was interviewed, and then I was hired. So you went to work in August 2016 for the Obama administration. You know, what was that work like, generally speaking? So the office does a bunch of different, um, has a bunch of different portfolios and attorney advisors there like me get to um, get to participate in in just about all of them. So part of that was reviewing executive orders that were coming in from the Obama administration, making sure that they satisfied the standard of form and legality. That's kind of the jargon that OLC uses for signing off on executive orders. We were also providing forms of formal advice and informal advice to the White House counsel's office and then to executive branch agencies who might come to us with a really tough statutory or constitutional question. We also review legislation to um, to see if there are constitutional issues that the administration might want to raise with Congress to help prevent them from going down an unconstitutional road. Okay, so those are a lot of, and those are a lot of the issues that people uh, ask questions about that we have um, episodes about where it's an executive order, like on the this emergency or on the travel ban or things like that. Uh, some of the uh, challenges regarding whether a particular legislation is constitutional, very big questions. Um, how, at, at some point, um, you know, obviously Donald Trump was elected. His he was inaugurated in January of 2017. And how, did the did the office change at all at that point? Yeah, so the office changed in a few different ways. You know, anytime there's a new administration, you are going to lose um, your political appointees and they're going to be swapped out for new political appointees. And one thing that I think is really important to understand about the Office of Legal Counsel is that even though, and I think the public consciousness, the, the office is understood as providing a kind of neutral view of the law or aspiring to a neutral view of the law. And it, it certainly does does try to, it does aspire in that way. The office's um, actual composition uh, means that it has a lot of political appointees embedded within it. So there are about 25 lawyers in the office at any given time, and about five or six of them are going to be political appointees rather than civil servants. I was there as a civil servant. So um, when the Obama administration ended, as as no matter who was elected, you know the Obama appointees were going to leave, and the new president's appointees were going to come in. We also lost um, over the next few months a bunch bunch of civil servants. Um, that often happens with any presidential transition, I think it was probably accelerated uh, because of who this president was and some of the things that he was saying about about his understanding of, of law and of the world. So, uh, you know, so at that point, um, there were some changes. You were continued to work there and you worked um, um, at, during, under the sort of the Trump in during the Trump administration for quite some time, right? From January 2017 through much of 2018. 
Through November of 2018. Yeah, for nearly two years. So for almost two years. So, um, it, it, w you know, how did you feel about working uh, for the uh, Office of Legal Counsel when Donald Trump was president? <laughs> So I, I, I should say up front, you know, as, as a civil servant, my role was to help make sure that the actions at the executive branch, sometimes those are the agencies, somehow, sometimes those are the White House, uh, that they wanted to take were lawful. And, you know, that obligation runs no matter who the president is. But what was really, really challenging for me was that we had a president who was saying that he really didn't care what was lawful. And he would, uh, you know, he would make claims on Twitter or in his public statements that uh, were not based in fact and would say that he had certain reasons for doing things um, or that he was, you know, choosing a particular uh, legal avenue for a reason that might be a, you know, a prohibited reason under law. And then the office would um, get the kind of legal work product that, that was coming from him. And we were in this position of, of having to decide um, how much weight to give those statements that he had made, if, if any at all, and how much to kind of turn a blind eye and just focus on the four corners of the document. And for me, turning a blind eye was seemed kind of inconsistent with my obligation to um, to protect and defend the Constitution. That sounds kind of, you know, maybe absurd to say. It sounds all high and mighty, but um, but it was really, really challenging to um, to feel like the expectations of the job, which were kind of described to me um, by my superiors as facilitating the president's goals and agenda when those seemed in conflict with the expectations uh, that my oath, I think, you know, uh, set on me. So um, I, I, one reason that I had that I've invited you on the show is because I think a lot of our listeners are trying to understand how it is that people are working in the Trump administration um, in various capacities, whether on the, you know, as a, a political appointee or as somebody who's just working in the government, carrying forth uh, particular policies. And I think you offer a really important window into that, um, that, that, that answer er to the answer to that question, Erica. And, uh, you know, so you mentioned, you know, a moment ago, okay, you felt uncomfortable about this disconnect. It seems to me that, um, this is an issue that the Justice Department has grappled with quite a bit. There's, oh, yeah. there's an entire body of law now that has been created uh, by positions that the Justice Department has taken where they've said essentially that the president's words don't matter, that when he says something is unclassified, that doesn't necessarily mean it's unclassified. When he <laughs> says someone's been wiretapped, that it doesn't necessarily mean that they've been wiretapped. And so on and so forth, that we can't take the president's words seriously. Um, and what you, you know, what I think it sounds to me like you're saying is it was hard for you when you would receive something from the White House that obviously wasn't drafted by Donald Trump. It was drafted right. by some lawyer there um, that seemed inconsistent with what he was saying on Twitter and elsewhere. Um, it was hard for you to ignore his other statements. That's right. And, uh, you know, look, 
I think our legal um, our legal infrastructure assumes that the president's words matter. I think the national emergency that he announced last week is a perfect example of that. As are um, kind of any executive orders that you look at. You know, as I discussed in the Washington Post piece, you know, executive orders usually kind of have two parts. They have the president's findings, the reason that he's doing something, the state of the world that has to exist in order for him to invoke certain powers, and then there are the actions that he plans to take when invoking those powers. And that first part of it, the here is the state of the world. I, I, the president of the United States, have access to the best information in the world. And I'm, I'm analyzing that information and then making judgment calls. Um, that's part of our legal infrastructure. Uh, it's not just about taking words literally or seriously. It's that when he takes that oath of office, when he took that oath of office in January 2017, we vested his, his words with a certain legal power. So... To circle back to uh, something we just talked about a few minutes ago, you know, you talked about how, you know, kind of sheepishly that you, there was this constitutional oath that you took that you you swore to uphold the Constitution. You felt like you weren't able to do that in in a um, honest way when you were told to sort of ignore what the president's statements were, et cetera. And. And this is at a time, you know, people should, you know, put to put in context that, that the travel ban and a lot of other um, of the Trump administration's actions were being considered by the Office of Legal Counsel. And, you know, you know, to you, you're you know, when you're talking to me about it, Erica, you're like kind of a little sheepish about it. Like, yeah, I had this oath and I felt like I know it's kind of corny, but I felt like I had to <laughs> care about it. But to a lot of people listening there's a lot of people who ask me questions all the time saying, like, why aren't there mass resignations? Why aren't people leaving? Why do they feel this pressure to stay? Why do why are they doing this? Why are they carrying things forward? And I want to help people understand some things that are unspoken that are kind of behind the scenes and that that keeps somebody in a job. So yeah. so let, let me just I want to explore some of that with you. Okay? Absolutely. These are these are the right questions. Absolutely. OK, so. First of all, let me just say, I'd say, you know, I when I was a, a federal prosecutor, I was initially hired when George W. Bush was the president. I I did not vote for him, but that didn't really impact my day to day job in any way. I was investigating crime in Chicago and indicting criminals and so forth uh, and convicting them, whatever that, you know, indicting people who I guess at the time were alleged to be criminals. But you get the point. Right. I, I wasn't I was not uh, I was not uh I, I, I wasn't like I was talking to George W. Bush. Your job was. But I think there's a presumption that you can work for anyone. You know, if you're a civil servant, you're working for anyone from any administration. And, you know, the, what presidents are doing, you may disagree with the specific policies. But as long as you are kind of doing your job in an honest way, that's there's nothing wrong with that. Is that fair? That is. And I think you've tapped into two different strains of thought. You know, one is um, I was really proud to be a member of the civil service, as were as were all my colleagues. And part of the culture of the civil service is that you are nonpartisan. You know, some might say transpartisan. Um, we all you know, we all vote. We all have candidates we may prefer or not prefer. But when you come into work, that doesn't matter. What matters is that you're you're serving the public. And part of that obligation is that 
you know, you are willing to do that and excited to do that, no matter who the president is. So that's that's one thing that I think you've you've tapped into there. The other is that um, our institutions matter and our civil service is one of our greatest national resources. And when you leave, someone else will replace you. And so, you know, in order to there's an argument that when our institutions are under threat, especially if you do have a president who doesn't seem to appreciate the values of a nonpartisan civil service, your obligation becomes that much sharper to stay and protect those values that someone who replaces you may be less likely to take as seriously. Yeah, I I would say so that's one set of reasons why people stay. Right. I would say another set of reasons, uh, well, kind of throw out there to folks, uh, I'll put in another bucket. So I already mentioned and I tried to give people context that being at the Office of Legal Counsel is a prestigious job. It's the sort of thing that often leads to other prestigious legal legal jobs. There's a lot a lot of, uh, you know, friends and associates of mine who worked at the Office of Legal Counsel and have gone on to do all sorts of things. And throughout history, there's people um, who've worked at the Office of Legal Counsel who became all sorts of things, including uh, justices in the Supreme Court. Um, and um, what it, it, when you there can be, I think, an incentive for someone to stay in that job and to thrive there. Um, because quitting in, uh, based on some sort of um, disagreement in terms of policy or whatever, um, you know, will potentially hurt your reputation with some of the people that are there. Is that would that be fair to say? Absolutely. Um, for some people, Re- repeat that, that's that you were you were just just oh. you started absolutely it got it got distorted Sorry. somehow. Sorry. Um, I absolutely think that people are often thinking about their um, about their career goals when they're deciding whether to quit or whether to whether to stay. Now, in this administration, that's a little bit different um, uh, in that there is, I think, more understanding uh, on the outside about why one might quit. But you're absolutely going to burn bridges with people on the inside. And um, and that fear of reputational or professional harm uh, is something that, that a lot of people take seriously. Yeah. I, I, I'm sorry. No, go on. <laughs> I was just going to say that. Um, well, here, let me just start that over. Yeah. So, you, you know, one thing I think people don't understand a lot of times is that, you know, a lot of times someone's career advancement depends on how they are perceived by others, their connections, their uh, relationships, the mentors that they have and so on. And so, you know, burning bridges um, can be can have a negative consequence. And, and for you, if you had stayed in OLC and, you know, perhaps if you had been somebody willing to do more um, over time in the Trump administration, that could have potentially given you legal opportunities that you didn't otherwise have. That's possible for me. That was um, that was actually less of a concern in part because um, I am not a member of the Federalist Society. I was not tightly networked with uh, with the conservative legal movement, and so the folks who I was working for, while you know there was a world in which they would recommend me for future jobs and things like that, I was never going to be someone that they were really pushing to the upper echelons of power, and that was freeing in some ways for me. I think for others who were more tightly networked, that that raised the professional stakes of pushing back. Well, let's talk about that, because it's the sort of thing that 
um, I don't think listeners ever really hear about. Okay, so you, you mentioned that the Federalist Society that is, and we've talked about it a, a little bit uh, in a few other episodes of the podcast. Um, it is a conservative legal organization that I think does a very good job of networking and organizing conservative lawyers or, or lawyers on the right. Um, and um, and helping them get various legal jobs. And they are very much behind the, a lot of the judicial selections. Um, it's very been very well publicized that the Federal Society has been running in many ways uh, uh, President Trump's uh, legal picks uh, for all of the uh, federal judgeships, including the Supreme Court. Um, and, you know, there can be a real incentive to become a uh, a conservative if you are uh, going to an elite law school and you have an elite legal career. I know when I was um, in law school, there were people who were essentially apolitical who decided that it was in their interest to um, join the Federalist Society. Yes. Yeah. And there's a lot of pressure to do that. I called them people in the me party. They weren't really they didn't have any um, actual uh, views on anything. It was all about advancement. And so, um, the, the, you know, the, there can be a good reason when you if you, if fewer than 50 percent of lawyers are on the right, but 50 percent of the top legal jobs are in conservative administrations, there can be a real incentive to stay within that network. That's exactly right. And Law is a very clubby profession, at least in the kind of elite DC circles. And you, you, I know, are familiar with this. And that means, and and lawyers are very risk averse, right? As a profession, we're very, very risk averse. And so people don't like to burn bridges. And so that means that for the lawyers who are really anywhere throughout this administration, uh, who are already kind of networked with the Federalist Society, networked with the people in in power, um, they. They are can sometimes be forced to decide between their uh, their professional uh, their me party status right their their professional pursuits and um, and I would say their oath and um, you see different people making different decisions. Yeah, I, I I know a lot of people personally who are in a position where they've they've either served in the Trump administration or. Um, have been asked to serve and they've had to make very difficult choices uh, because they are people who are in the federal society and um, you know they're part of that that world uh, and it's it's a tough decision it's a very insular group and if you are somebody who's seen as a you know a bomb thrower or a dissenter you're not part of the team uh, that can be a problem it can affect your career advancement but let me jump in here and say, yes, it is hard for your career advancement, but lawyers in these circles are very privileged. They tend to be, you know, economically very comfortable. And you know, my personal view is we should expect better and that, you know, what what uh, people in the legal profession owe our society right now is to stand up, especially at a time when rule of law is being challenged from the pres by the president himself, uh, is for lawyers to stand up and say, this is not acceptable. And it's part of why I have so much admiration for the genuinely anti-Trump conservatives who are willing to say, I know this is burning bridges, but this is the right thing to do. And, and, um, and we need to stand up and we need to kind of come together and, and fight for a broader, broader constitutional goals. Yeah, I agree with that completely. I mean, just to be crystal clear, I'm not defending um, any of these people and why they are 
um, staying in these jobs. I'm trying to help our listeners understand why that could be, because a lot of people just don't get why um, there aren't people quitting um, this administration in droves and, and protesting uh, what the administration is doing and so on. Uh, and look, you're right. Um, all these people who have these elite law jobs are very privileged. Um, my dad's a cashier at Walmart. Both of my parents, uh, you know, didn't go to college and worked two jobs. You know, the, the for to folks like my family, uh, all my extended family, having any of these jobs is insane. Okay, um, but the people who are wrapped up in their advancement and all of this, they can they can be forced to make very difficult choices, and and often that's why the default choice might be to just silently continue. Um, which is, I think, what we've seen, not just in the executive branch, where there are people who are career employees like like you were, but even in other branches of our government, where there are Republicans who are sort of silently not, you know, saying nothing when there are um, sort of abuses that are in the public view, while um, you know, while privately sometimes whispering something different. I- Absolutely. And I think I, I'd like to add a couple a couple of things for the listeners to think about. Um, you know, one is that for those who who may be staying, say, because of their pensions um, or um, because, you know, they they're trying to support their families um, and may for for various reasons not have not have quite as good exit options as, as others. You know, they're they're looking out at some of the things that the president is saying at other lawyers in the Department of Justice, right? The demox, the doxing and the firing and, you know, uh, the demoting of, of various attorneys who stand up for rule of law values. And they feel really scared. Now, we can talk about whether that fear is is legitimate, but I think it's real. I think there's a real kind of fear that travels down the halls of the Department of Justice. Um, the other thing and kind of uh, if another on the other side of things, on the other side of the balance, you know, lawyers see client representation as as the core of their craft, and they're really, really sensitive to the charge that that they or that we are not zealously representing our clients. And the president has been really, really good at tapping into this sensitivity. So you know, he is spreading this deep state conspiracy theory and is saying that anyone who is not loyal to him is trying to undermine our democracy. And lawyers who are so sensitive to to being told that they are being partisan or that they're not representing their clients. You know, I think they often start to fear, oh, my God, is is that what I'm doing? And there's this, you know, strain in conservative jurisprudence, especially called the unitary executive theory. And I know you're familiar with it, sure. that that really says that uh, everyone throughout the government and especially government attorneys owe their loyalty and their fidelity to the president. And the idea of this theory is that the president will then promote <clears throat> constitutional values through the work of the executive branch. But this president doesn't seem to have any concept of constitutional values. And so it's really easy for this to create a pressure on on government lawyers that I think they internalize. And this is not a good thing. I don't mean it as an excuse, but I think it's important for people to think about what pressures are, are being kind of 
uh, applied to these lawyers that um, that if they're not showing loyalty to the president, then somehow they're not doing their jobs. They're they're the ones being partisan. And this is absurd. This is absolutely absurd. They are not. They they have a higher loyalty, right? A loyalty to the Constitution, um, to to cite to James Comey. But um, but I think people end up convincing themselves that they have a, an obligation to follow follow orders. And I think that's the that the work that that kind of has to be done is to say, no, that's not your obligation is not one of blind loyalty to the president. Um, it's it's to the Constitution. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And I have uh, heard that sentiment myself from people who are serving in government. Yeah, you know, I, you know, it's an interesting thing that you you mentioned the sort of deep state rhetoric. I was going to ask you about that because there's a lot of um, nasty rhetoric coming from Trump and other, uh, uh, you know, folks who are allied to him about the deep state conspiracy, and they would perhaps see you somebody who has, you know, quit the administration because you you know disagreed with. Um, actions taken, you thought that they were violating our constitutional val, you know, our constitution and your values. Um, they, they would regard you as a member of the deep state. You are part of the reason that they, you know, that they can't get things done because people like you are are working against them uh, in government. You're the, the the shadow government. You know, what would you say to those people? I have a few responses. One is, you know, I'm not working. I was was not working against any person or any party. I was working for rule of law and for the Constitution. Um, so that's that's the first response. The second is, you know, like any conspiracy theory, the deep state conspiracy theory assumes some some organizational network, right, of grand conspiracy, as you were, and there could be nothing further from the truth. The lawyers at the Department of Justice and throughout the executive branch are coming to work every day and trying to um, trying to promote those rule of law values. And, you know, as I just said, if anything, I think they're erring too far toward um, toward toward I creating an identity between President Donald Trump or the man who is president, Donald Trump, and the broader constitutional values that we've all taken an oath to to protect and defend. But, you know, that said, you know, I, I have to admit, I'm I'm aware that that going out and writing something like this um, could be taken and misused by people um, to to support that uh, that kind of deep state conspiracy theory. And that is really scary for me. And and it does have a muzzling effect. Right. I wondered if I shouldn't shouldn't talk at all about my experience because it would add fuel to that fire. But then I realized that's exactly what a conspiracy theory does. Right. It, it silences people. Um, and thereby itself grows stronger. So let's turn to um, your Washington Post op-ed. That's how I first heard of you. It's it's interesting because I would th- I think that in another era or another administration, this would have gotten more attention. I think that nowadays, uh, one thing that happens is that you know I am asked to comment on some news story, and I'll tell you by the time I get to it, you know, if I'm in a meeting, if I'm meeting with my client, if I'm in court, uh, the news cycle changes because everything is so crazy uh, right now uh, with uh, the news cycle with uh, Donald Trump. But you wrote an, an op-ed for the Washington Post, and you talk about how you left uh, the uh, to, you left the Office of Legal Counsel and why, and what and how you thought that. Um, you were um, not uh, upholding your oath if you stayed there and you and you sort of carried forward um, uh, 
certain a- certain actions uh, on behalf of the Trump administration. And one example that you gave is you talked about, for example, the travel ban executive order. And you said that what happens is, you know, those get submitted to OLC. OLC goes over the list of actions like that and you make sure that nothing is out of line. And essentially, um, you know, you felt that by doing that, you were essentially using the law to legitimize lies is what you that was the words you used in your op-ed. Can you explain, you know, what you meant by that and, and kind of walk through that for our listeners? Absolutely. So many executive orders uh, are are the president exercising an authority that is delegated by statute. The national emergency order that just came out is a perfect example of that. The president was exercising an authority that the National Emergencies Act delegated. And so those delegations, those statutes, usually require the president to make findings about the state of the world um, as a prerequisite to taking action, to, to changing the state of the world. And when OLC uh, receives an executive order, what it receives is obviously the president's statement about his findings of the state of the world, as well as um, as the actions he's going to take. And I want to pause right here to, to talk about one difference between executive order review in prior administrations and executive order review in the Trump administration, because it's really important to, I think, understanding some of the problems that, that have arisen in this administration. So in prior administrations, there was this this entire process, it's known as the interagency process. It's run by the Office of Management and Budget, uh, OMB, as it's known throughout the federal government, that um, that basically sends draft executive orders around to all of the agencies with equities, right, with stake or interest in the executive order, and says, does this look right to you, right? Are these facts correct? Are we missing something? You know, uh, lawyers who are expert in this narrow area of law, have we missed something? And all of that input, all of that expertise from from around the federal government, which, as I said before, the the civil service is, is one of our great national treasures. So all of that expertise would pour into OMB, and OMB would consolidate it improve the executive order, and then send it to OLC for review. So OLC would have those those facts, those claims coming in from the agencies, and then would make a determination about whether the executive order was lawful. This administration does not use that process. Consistent with the statements we all see the president making publicly, it doesn't seem to have the same level of interest in making sure that the facts are right. So OLC is now in this administration is getting these draft orders um, and they haven't been vetted for facts in the same way. And OLC is being asked to um, to look over the order as a whole, figure out whether the facts and the law are right. And um, and that puts the office in a situation where even the best intentioned people would be poised to miss things. You add to that a uh, a culture of deference to the president, an attitude that it's not our job to question the facts. You know, you want you make sure that that, you know, a statistic is not technically wrong, but mostly uh, you work to try to make the order as um, as bulletproof in litigation as possible. 
And, um, and what you realize you end up doing is creating alibis, right? You know, as a thinking human, what the president is actually trying to do here. You know his reasons for reasons for doing this. In fact, sometimes you even are getting them in the early drafts that you're receiving. And then you're massaging things to, um, to help protect those reasons from coming through and to help make them look le- more legitimate. And that, to me, was engaging in a lie. And um, while I recognize that the practice of governance and the practice of working for government is always about compromise, and that was something, you know, I always thought about, um, ultimately, it just felt like we were, I was engaging in too much of that, that facilitating of lies to continue to work there. You know, it's an interesting thing. I mean, I think that to a lot of folks, if they're from the outside, they're like, well, you know, lawyers in general, is that what they do, right? They take <laughs> clients are trying to do, you, you know, bad things and they try to g- help them get away with it in some point. Uh, I don't think broadly understood that's what the practice of law actually is, but it is the way I think that people think of it. Uh, and I and for you, you know, it seemed to me partly it's just a matter of degree as well. In other words, this isn't something where, like, look, you know, there was a proposal to do something in, an, in a way that was unconstitutional, but there's a way to achieve the same thing using constitutional means um, or something like that. You know, y- your point is that essentially what you were doing is you were taking something that on its face might appear to have an animus or might appear to have a certain motivation that might have made it unconstitutional. But by sanitizing it, you're essentially hiding from the world the truth in a way. That's exactly right. And, you know, as as you know, as a former prosecutor, when you're representing the government in as a lawyer, you know, when you're when you're litigating, you stand up and you say you represent the United States of America. And that is a. That is an acknowledgement that we are serving a higher a higher purpose, right? We are we have a constitutional oath that our client is not one man; it's it's the public, and it's in some senses the Constitution, and um, that just isn't consistent to me with um, with facilitating lies. You know, it, that's a very important point. Uh, when I was a prosecutor, I was always. Uh, you know, taught and reminded the same thing that the, we represent the United States. We don't represent, um, you know, um, an agency or a, um, you know, we don't have an interest in getting a prosecution. We're trying to do justice. And there's that famous saying in the rotunda of the Justice Department that the United States wins its point when justice is done, it's people in the courts. And the point, of course, is to do justice for the people of the United States of America, not to try to win a particular legal argument. So, you know, and I think more people, um, you know, would be good to, um, you know, keep that in mind as they're taking certain actions. So let me um, just say to you, Erica, I know that that, you know, you made this sort of big decision. You wrote an op ed, obviously. Um, You know, has there been any negative fallout for you um, as you transition to your new job, which we can talk about in a minute? Um. It's really hard for me to judge. Um, obviously, I uh, I'm not going to talk about specific conversations I've had with people. I think there are a range of views. I've um, I've 
talked with some folks uh, who've had different roles in government and felt like this piece really captured something that um, that that it rang true to them. I think for for some other folks, maybe less so, or they question whether any lawyer within the Department of Justice is able to do the type of um, a fact checking kind of that I'm calling for or able to call out lies, whether that's an appropriate institutional role professionally. I've been really, really fortunate in that I'm now in an, an environment, in a professional environment that uh, that really um, sees the sees the role of the Justice Department and um, understands constitutional obligations kind of in a way that I do. And I have some really wonderful and supportive colleagues. Um, so I apologize for not going into specifics in that answer. But um, but let's say I've I felt very supported. So what are you up to now? So I am now a counsel at Protect Democracy, which is a nonprofit organization. We started in, um, organization was founded in uh, the winter of 2017. And our mission is to prevent our democracy from declining into a more authoritarian form of government. Right? No, it's ambitious, right? But but what, what Protect Democracy you know, saw in in the winter of 2017, and I think as you, as you and your listeners well know, what's been proven true is that uh, actions have been taken over the past two years that have really undermined our institutions and the institutions that keep our democracy strong, and they've started to push them in in directions that historically have not been good ones. Right? There's politicization of independent institutions and the spread of disinformation. We are seeing executive power grabs. We're seeing the quashing of dissent. We're seeing the delegitimization of communities, which is kind of a key tactic that folks use when they're trying to, that people in power use when they're trying to weaken democracy. And we're seeing the corruption of elections, right? Just just look at Georgia. And so the organization is what its name says it is. It's, it's we're protecting democracy. Well, that's great. Um, and I thank you for you know, doing work that's, you know, in public interest work uh, that's, you know, it, that's doing something to move things forward for the public. Uh, you know, that is definitely um, admirable. There's a lot of times that there's a temptation for folks to uh, always go for whatever pays the top dollar as opposed to doing that. And I, I admire what you're doing. So th- thank you for that. And thank you for sort of taking the time to um, you know, sit with you know, sit with us and explain to us sort of your perspective and what you had to go through. I think it's uh, you know an interesting and remarkable uh, decision that you made, and I think it really helps us understand and and raises a lot of important questions uh, about um, exactly how the administration is functioning and the the difficult choices that many people have as they work in it. Well, thank you, Renato. It was really great to chat. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. (laughs) 